Insole International, in conjunction with the Early Research Academics Committee, presents Insole Talks. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Insole Talks. Today, we have a distinguished guest from Singapore, Justice Kanan Ramesh. Justice Ramesh joined the Supreme Court as Judicial Commissioner in May 2015 and then as a judge of the High Court in April 2017. In 2019, he was appointed as a Judicial Commissioner of the Supreme Court of Granada, Jerusalem. And as far as I understand, this position was recently extended for another two years. So welcome, Justice Ramesh. It is a great honor and privilege to have you here with us today. Thank you very much, Ilya. In my, it's my privilege and honor to be here and to have this conversation with you. Yeah, I'm sure our audience will enjoy our conversations and the insights that you will share today. Shall we start with your career path, Justice Ramesh? Becoming a judge, was it something that you, have, you had in mind when you were a student at the university? And maybe you can share some, some background for your career path and how, how did you become a judge? Well, I accepted the invitation because it was a privilege and an honor to be asked and to be given the opportunity to serve and make a difference. It may sound cliched, but it is nonetheless true. This is exactly what I said when asked by the Straits Times, Singapore News AD, the same question when I was appointed for the bench in 2015. I will be honest, the invitation was a bolt from the blue. I was unprepared. I had a successful and busy practice. The firm was in a period of rapid expansion and transformation. I was therefore torn between the pull of the bench and what I felt was unfinished business with the firm. After deep reflection, it became crystal clear that answering the call to serve was the right decision. Was becoming a judge always on my mind? I must say that in law school, it was not. I am sure few will disagree when I say university days are amongst the most enjoyable times of a person's life. There are so many exciting things happening that engage and to some extent distract the young mind. I was no exception. Fortunately, I remain somewhat focused on the academics. Thus, while appointment to the Supreme Court bench was aspirational, it was not something I gave a great deal of thought to then. I saw judges from a distance as lofty icons of the law. They spoke to me through their judgments, but it was hard to see them as normal human beings. That changed when I started practice as a litigator. I had always wanted to be a litigator. When I started practice, my seniors fortunately placed trust and confidence in me, and I was thrown into the deep end from day one with a heavy workload of difficult commercial disputes. I was sent to argue matches before the High Court and the Court of Appeal very early in my career, and I had to learn very quickly or sink. There was no time to be nervous. You just swam with the tide as vigorously as you could. Fortunately, I managed to stay afloat, barely. As a student, I was conscious of the fundamental importance of the judiciary to the rule of law. Of law. As students of the law, we know that the rule of law is the thread that stitches together the fabric of civil society. However, what was not perhaps so evident to me was the immense responsibility on the shoulders of judges in upholding the rule of law. 
it is an incredibly difficult task trying to get to a just outcome. It might sound easy, but it actually is not. I realized this as I appeared before, appeared with increasing frequency before judges. As a consequence, the penny dropped, and I began to see the appointment to the bench as a culmination of a life in the law. And I suppose the rest is history. Well, Justice Ramesh, I think the fact that you pointed out that judges are just normal human beings is a very valuable point, and I'm sure our audience will appreciate hearing from you and your personal stories and, and having to realize that judges are indeed just normal human beings, even though, of course, they have different maybe set of skills or mindset, but we'll get into that in a bit. So you had a very interesting and very diverse background. So you you worked in legal consultancy as a partner of a law firm, but you were also involved in business as, as a board member. Do you think this experience, so this uh, diverse professional background, both in business and consultancy, helps you as a judge in deciding commercial cases? It's, it's a good question. Um, I think it makes a difference, or at the very least helps to make a difference in commercial matters, particularly of the insolvency and restructuring variety. Uh, it really comes down to having been there, having an understanding of the economics of business, of businesses and financial data, and seeing how bona fide businesses and those that are not operate. The experience is actually invaluable. Now, how does it actually help? I make three points. First, you understand the issues and the arguments better. Second, you have a better feel for the dynamics and undercurrents at play between the parties. In other words, if a party is running an argument that is specious, you will be able to see through it and understand why that is being done. Third, you understand the impact and implications of your decisions better. This allows you to calibrate the reliefs accordingly. Yeah, the, the, those are really good points. Uh, and I completely agree that having this background actually helps seeing the commercial side of the matter more clear. You also mentioned insolvency cases. So I, um, as an insolvency scholar, tend to know you from, from the judgments that you made, and most of them, to be honest, are insolvency-related judgments. What is so peculiar about them, and, and how do they differ from, let's say, general commercial uh, cases? And maybe you can also reflect on the insolvency cases with the cross-border or international elements. Well, I, I, I have had a short and intense runway as an insolvency judge. My appointment to the bench was in 2015, and insolvency um, as a staple part of my diet as a judge uh, really came to fore in 2016. So it's, it's a short and intense runway. And, and I think it's fair to say it's been a real sprint, and it's been a real sprint because of so much transformative reform work in Singapore that has happened in a very short span of time. It has undoubtedly stretched me as a, as a judge, and I think that probably is true of all my colleagues. Having said that, the experience has been deeply enriching. I must add that the opportunity to share experiences and have a candid exchange of views and ideas with colleagues in the Judicial Insolvency Network, the International Insolvency Institute, and INSOL, has contributed immensely to my learning 
So what is peculiar about insolvency cases? Well, first and foremost, they are not disputes between clearly identified parties like in conventional dispute resolution. You do not have a plaintiff or a complainant and a defendant or a respondent. The paradigm is different and somewhat amorphous with the focus being on the collective that is at the core of an insolvency process. The principal investigation is actually to identify the right economic solution for the financial malaise plaguing the party in distress. That solution may be liquidation or the formulation of restructuring under a DIP or a non-DIP regime, depending on what's available in the local context. In identifying and implementing that solution, the court has to be careful in dealing with a multifarious polity of stakeholders, some organized, some who are not, who quite often have conflicting interests and agenda. As a result of the different voices, safeguards to ensure due process and avoid abuse of process are important considerations for the court. Dominant views should not be allowed to unfairly cram down the views of the minority. It is self-evident from this that the options for the court in an insolvency matter are not binary as it is in bilateral disputes where one party wins and the other loses. As one is seeking solutions, it may be said that the judicial approach is slightly different. Building consensus is an important ingredient as our flexibility and innovation exercise, of course, within the parameters of the law and due process considerations. Cross-border matters pose a greater challenge. Jurisdictional arbitrage arising from differences in approach is anathema to resolving cross-border insolvencies effectively. They are a real problem in cross-border matters. Globalization, decoupling in certain sectors precipitated by the current political climate and climate change mean that this problem will arise with increasing frequency. The modern law on cross-border insolvency is a solution. It, does, it, it seeks to address the problem by making coordination and cooperation as one of its core elements. The Guide to Enactment states that the model law, and I quote, provides a framework for cooperation between jurisdictions, offering solutions to facilitate and promote a uniform approach to cross-border insolvency, unquote. The same objective underpins the GIN guidelines. The opening paragraph of the guideline states, and I quote, the overarching objective of the guidelines is to improve in the interest of all stakeholders the efficiency and effectiveness of cross-border proceedings relating to insolvency and adjustment of debt, unquote. These words speak to the importance of flexibility and innovation underscored by a preparedness to communicate and cooperate. Judges are therefore critical. They must be willing to cooperate and communicate with each other and with foreign representatives to unravel knots and find solutions. And obviously having networks, networks like the gin helps immensely. Thank you, George. There is so much there to digest and to dissect. You mentioned the model law on cross-border insolvency. You mentioned the reforms of Singapore insolvency law. So let's maybe start with the later. When 
Over the last decade, and especially in the last five years, Singapore has significantly reformed its national insolvency law. As a result of these reforms, it has become one of the key destinations for debt restructuring, also including for foreign companies. And we have already seen a number of cases where foreign registered companies uh, went to Singapore to restructure. At least this is my view as an outsider, even though I visited Singapore a few years ago, and that was fantastic, of course. What are, in your opinion, the main ingredients which have ensured such a, a quick progress in the area of insolvency law in Singapore? And how did it affect you as a judge who has to decide insolvency-related disputes? Well, Ilya, you're very kind in describing Singapore as one of the key destinations for debt restructuring. Thank you. Sure. <laughs> uh, it is gratifying to see that our work has been received in such a positive manner. We think that Singapore can play a role in Asian restructurings because of her DNA. I think, I think much has been written about our DNA, but I'll just set out some of the attributes which were also captured in my speech at the Texas International Law Journal Symposium in February this year. Uh, those attributes are A, a strong rule of law framework, an independent judiciary comprising a strong and specialist domestic and international bench, I think we are somewhat unique in the sense that we have uh, a combination of, of the domestic and a uh, domestic and international bench, a strong domestic and offshore bar. We are a global financial and legal hub. And we now, with the reforms, have a comprehensive suite of legislative tools. Uh, in many ways, these attributes are the same that have seen Singapore become a global center for dispute resolution and arbitration. And in, in many ways, these attributes echo uh, explain the reasons behind the success of London and New York as international centers for dispute resolution and restructuring. Uh, the way we see it is insolvency is a natural evolution in the suite of options, uh, dispute resolu resolution options that Singapore can offer, and we have taken the step forward. I have alluded earlier to the pace of reform in Singapore. It has been rapid, and that, frankly, is an understatement. This has only been possible because of a collective effort by all stakeholders. The Ministry of Law, which is the ministry behind the legislation, the judiciary, the bar, and the creditor community, all pulling in one direction, all had come together, agreed on an achievable objective and timetable, and moved forward in unison. The level of cooperation between the key institutions of the, of the state was frankly outstanding. The end result was the reforms that you have mentioned being put in place within two years of the process being initiated. We started in 2015 uh, with the committee, which I co-chaired with Minister Johnny Raja, and um, the, the bill was before parliament at the end of 2017 and was passed. So that's, that's fast by most standards. The same energy coordination and commitment was on display during Singapore's response to the pandemic, when a slew of four pieces of legislation were introduced over a period of six months to address the legal issues that the pandemic brought. I should add that the reform process that started in 2015 is not over. It's not, uh, it's still, there's still little uh, further elements that are being considered. Having said that, we are satisfied with what we have achieved and are confident that the product is fit for purpose. 
The scale of reform activity has meant that the pressure on judges has increased. I think I've touched on that earlier. Apart from an increase in workload, reform means that judicial training is vital. And we have the Singapore Judicial College here playing a crucial role in ensuring that that has happened, working with the Singapore law schools and overseas institutions to provide the necessary programs for the judges to keep abreast of the latest developments that are pertinent. Thank you, Justice. And I think, you know, a good example of the success is the Insol International opened its regional hub in Singapore a few years ago as well. I think that's an evidence that maybe it's moving in the right direction. There are many processes going on, not only in Asia, but also in other parts of the world. Of course, in Europe, we have uh, new forums that may in the future play a crucial role for restructuring uh, the Netherlands has reformed its, its, its insolvency law, but of course, Germany and other jurisdictions. Of course, I, I'm not going to mention the B word, but I've already done. So we'll see how Brexit will affect the, the market for, for restructuring for enterprises. And uh, I would like to bring this to the speech that you gave. And you already mentioned this speech at, uh, at the Texas International Law Journal Symposium, which was held in February this year. You, uh, your speech was titled Party Autonomy and the Search for Nodal Jurisdiction in Cross-Border Insolvency. In it, you supported the idea that forum shopping, or as you prefer to call it, forum selection, as a more neutral term, may be a good thing. The argument, which in your opinion has been made more compelling by the economic effects of the current pandemic, in the European Union, at least that's my kind of perception, forum shopping has traditionally been seen in the negative light as something to be avoided because it could be abusive and detrimental to the general body of creditors. Would you be so kind to share maybe and explain your ideas about the choice of an insolvency forum and party autonomy in that respect? And whether in the future there could be more options for companies to choose from as we see different restructuring hubs appearing? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm happy to do so, Elia. Um, I, I really do prefer forum selection as opposed to forum shopping, as uh, forum shopping has uh, somewhat pejorative connotations. And much of my thoughts on, on this issue uh, is covered in, 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 the, in the speech that I delivered uh, at the Texas Forum in February 2021. But I, I, will, I will elaborate on some of the points uh, here. Um, I do not believe that forum selection is controversial, or at the very least, as controversial as it's made out to be. In my speech, I had said that forum selection was perhaps inevitable because of the rise of nodal jurisdictions with broadly common DNA. In my view, it is a misnomer to dismiss party autonomy on forum selection as a negative thing simply because insolvency is a collective process. That is to conflate two separate issues. A, whether forum selection is legitimate, and B, the collectivity that comes with an insolvency process. With due respect, it does not follow that by allowing the parties the autonomy to forum select, the collective process is compromised in any shape or form. It is important to remember that forum choices are being made all the time by debtors and has been recognized in insolvency instruments. Let me explain. 
To the extent that the location of the COMI is pertinent to the opening of insolvency proceedings under the EIR or the EIR recast, or for recognition as main proceedings under the model law, both these instruments recognize the forum choice made by the debtor. To the extent the debtor's registered office raises a rebuttable presumption of COMI under both instruments, they again recognize that forum choice made by the debtor. The very fact that the presumption is rebuttable suggests that the debtor can split the location of incorporation and COMI. This is again forum selection by the debtor. To the extent the rule in Gibbs's sound law, there's an implicit choice of forum made by the debtor and his creditors. Finally, to the extent that the common law recognizes the place of incorporation as the place where insolvency proceedings ought to be open, there's also forum choice made. So forum choices are nothing new. The deeper question is whether the choice once made is written in stone. It seems to me, at least on a tentative basis, that as a matter of principle, it is unsustainable to insist that the choice once made is set in stone and cannot be revised in light of changed circumstances. Indeed, the EIR recast contains a rule concerning the movement of the registered office three months before the opening of insolvency proceedings, which suggests that a movement before the period is not impermissible. That seems to me to be forum selection. Ultimately, the overarching consideration in the search for Comey is to ascertain the location of the seat of the central administration of the debtor as assessed by a set of objective factors ascertainable by third parties. But really, who are these third parties? Surely, they must be the creditors. If this is correct, I do not see why there's an objection in principle to movement of the seat with the support of creditors who are critical to the restructuring in order to give the debtor access to an insolvency process that more closely meets their collective needs than what is available under the law of the debtor's form of Kony. After all, the argument against forum selection is often made on the basis that the creditors will suffer prejudice. But if the creditors themselves, uh, sorry, if the creditors who matter support the move, then why should there be a fundamental objection? To accept this argument is not really to make a left field argument, or to accept this philosophy is not to make a left field argument. It brings insolvency in line with international dispute resolution. Party autonomy is a cornerstone of international dispute resolution. You see it in several international instruments. I cite two. First, the wildly successful New York Convention and the Model Law International Commercial Arbitration, which recognize the party's choice of seat or place of arbitration as determinative of the jurisdiction that exercises supervision over the arbitration. Second, the Hague Choice of Court Convention is built on the party's choice of jurisdiction for the resolution of their differences. Judgments issued by the court of that jurisdiction will be enforced under the convention. This is party autonomy at play. There are four other points I should make. First, forum selection is already happening and has been recognized. I've cited many instances of jurisprudence to this effect in my speech. Indeed, before Brexit, many European restructurings were heard in London. And now post-Brexit, you've mentioned uh, new options are opening on mainland Europe. 
The same could also be said of restructurings, for example, from Asia and South America moving to the US. This is forum selection by the parties. Second, the guide to enactment and the ancestral judicial perspectives do not suggest that forum selection is prohibited conduct. Third, the new model on enterprise groups with, with the emphasis on planning proceedings, in my view, and I've said this in my paper, lean towards, leans towards forum selection. Fourth, the use by international commercial courts, and I take the SICC as an example, of exclusive jurisdiction clauses to assert jurisdiction, much like choice of seat in arbitration, is a move in the same direction. And finally, if you have been following the common law jurisprudence on exclusive choice of, sorry, choice of jurisdiction clauses conferring exclusive jurisdiction on courts, you'll see that the courts have increasingly moved towards enforcing such clauses. So I therefore think that foreign selection is here to stay. I suggest that the search will lead to model jurisdictions. Professor J. Westbrook described them as control countries. I prefer the more neutral term model jurisdictions. Of course, these are my initial thoughts and I remain open to being, to, to being persuaded otherwise. Uh, this brings me to uh, one final point. Are nodal jurisdiction, nodal jurisdictions in competition? Uh, I frankly think they are not. They serve complementary roles because businesses are spread across the globe these days. And it's important, in my view, that they do not see themselves as competing. It's important that they coordinate and communicate with each other in developing a cohesive and sustainable framework for the resolution of cross-border insolvencies. And institutions such as the GIN will no doubt help in facilitating that conversation. Thank you very much, Justice. I think there is a lot of history and, and various political reasons why the forum selection you know, may face certain obstacles. Of course, there is an issue of sovereignty. Insolvency matters have traditionally been considered to be sensitive and you know, so there are many things, but uh, there's also past dependency for sure there. So some courts maybe not be as open to give cases to other jurisdictions. So there is a lot to be developed in that area. But hopefully, you know, we'll see a, a development in, in favor of commercially sensible solutions, helping companies restructure efficiently and and preserve the going concern value indeed. You also mentioned that one of the a key aspects of the success of Singapore is this openness of the jurisdiction towards cooperation and communication with other judges and, and courts. In October 2016, the Judicial Insolvency Network, or GIN, that you have already mentioned, held its inaugural conference in Singapore. Would you please describe the role of this network and some of the main results of, of this work? And maybe you can also give some insights of what GIN is currently working on? Well, first and foremost, let me thank you for asking this question. There's actually a nice story behind the gin, which I'll come to in answering your question. Uh, but let me answer your question by first going back to the model law. I already uh, mentioned that one of the cornerstones of the model law is communication and cooperation to avoid fragmentation. And articles 25 to 27 specifically address this. However, the articles do not address how communication between courts and between courts and foreign representatives should take place. Article 27D specifically provides that cooperation under Articles 25 and 26 may be implemented by the courts approving agreements concerning the coordination of proceedings. 
these agreements would usually be in the form of protocols titled by the Court for Communication and Cooperation. This is a point that neatly segues to the GIN and the GIN guidelines. The seeds for the birth, and this is a story I mentioned, the seeds for the birth of the GIN were planted during a lunch conversation at the Supreme Court's weekly lunch gathering of judges. We meet every Wednesday. Uh, of course, with the pandemic, those lunches have sadly been put on hold and are now sorely missed. The conversation in question preceded actually Singapore's reforms and adoption of the model law. To that extent, it was perhaps prescient. On this particular occasion, I happened to be seated across the table from the Chief Justice. And I was a new appointment to the bench at the time, or at least a fairly new appointment. As a member of the III, I had attended many of his annual conferences. There were many presentations, of course, on various subjects, but two topics fascinated me and stuck to my mind. The first was court to court communication and cooperation. That was fascinating for me because it's not something that people uh, generally understand courts to be doing, um, at least when I was uh, in early days of my practice. And the second was the use of ADR in the resolution of insolvency disputes. I'll come to the second point later in, in my response. So with the earnestness that comes with being a new member of the bench, I was having an enthusiastic conversation with one of my colleagues, Justice A.D. Abdullah, who I'm sure everyone knows, who had the misfortune of being seated next to me. Uh, on, and, and our conversation was why court was, well, I was trying to make the point to him as to why court to court communication and cross-border insolvencies was such a good thing. And I was lamenting why there wasn't an effort to bring a network of judges together to provide thought leadership on the subject. I thought that a network of judges would lend ballast to the whole, whole, whole initiative. I did not know that the Chief Justice was listening intently to our conversation. In fact, he seemed to be in conversation with another colleague. At an appropriate break in my earnest conversation with, with Justice Abdullah, he reached over, interjected, and said, Ramesh, why don't you do this? Why don't you set up this network you've been telling Edith about? I was taken aback. I paused for a moment and reflected. And it dawned on me, why not? It makes perfect sense. I replied to the chief that I would get it done, to which the chief justice's response was, when? Soon? Five months later, in October 2016, the gin was born in Singapore. The gin guidelines was the first product of the gin, as it seemed the most, that the most obvious area to start was court-to-court -court communication. The first draft was prepared by a core group ahead of the first meeting of the gin in Singapore and was reviewed, amended, and refined by the gin over the course of two challenging days involving vigorous debate. I was there, so I, I can tell you it was, uh, it was uh, vigorous. It was touch and go at times as to whether we would get over the line, but we did just past 4.30 p.m. on the second day. Gin guidelines were born and have been a phenomenal success with no fewer than 16 courts of significance uh, adopting them. They are all over the world, most recently in Brazil, the court in Sao Paulo. The raison d'etre of the gin is obvious when one looks at its objectives. The gin serves as a platform for sustained and continuous, continuous engagement for the furtherance of the following objectives. First, 
to provide judicial thought leadership in cross-border insolvencies. Two, to second, to develop best practices in cross-border insolvencies. Three, to facilitate communication and cooperation among national courts in cross-border insolvencies. I think this speaks to the role of the GIN. So what are the projects the GIN is working on? I'll just mention two. The first is the project on the use of ADR in cross-border insolvencies. This actually is a joint project with the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators. It is actually a massive undertaking involving academics and of course, members of the GIN. I think it will result in some groundbreaking work. The second is guidelines on the management of admiralty rights in a shipping insolvency. Admiralty rights present unique challenges in insolvency and require, I think, careful uh, consideration and handling. And I just want to say, you know, people might ask, um, what are the value of the instruments issued by GIN, given that they are really soft law products? I think the very fact that they are soft law instruments provides the answer. Conventions are by nature difficult because they have to be adopted by nations by ascension and ratification and, not, and are not amenable to change. There's actually very little flexibility in the adoption process. Model laws are more flexible, but also require an act of state before they assume force of law. Soft law instruments, on the other hand, do not suffer from these difficulties simply because they are not binding and serve to provide guidance on best practices. Of course, the weight to be attributed to soft law instruments depends on who has issued them. When it comes to cross-border insolvencies in particular, it matters that the guidance is by judges from jurisdictions where significant such matters are heard. It is in their courts that the rubber hits the road. And I think the wise parties would sensibly have regard to guidance that they have issued in, extra, in an extrajudicial capacity in deciding how best to navigate matters. Just as I, it was so insightful to hear how Gene was established, and I think it just proves the importance of having live conversations and informal discussions. And I, I pretty much support, you know, your eagerness to have it back to normal. And at least in the Netherlands where I come from, we are pretty much back to normal, which feels great that you can get to see your colleagues and students and have live conversations with them and share your views and, and experiences. That that's that's just a good proof of how some of the great ideas are born. And and thank you so much for sharing your story. And I agree that soft law sometimes can be even harder than hard law. And I think Irit Mavarak nicely wrote about this in one of her latest uh, papers. Justice, I'm, I'm afraid we have to sl- slowly go back or get to the end of this uh, conversation because I don't want to take much of your time. I'm sure our listeners wouldn't mind. Can I please um, maybe ask you the final question? And that relates to your participation in the Ian Fletcher International Insolvency Law Mood as a, as a judge in the finals that was in 2020. Do you find this experience to be valuable for students? Or should, would you recommend students to get involved in this, in this mood court? And maybe you can tie to the question of what advice you would like to give to a, a smart and driven university student about to enter the real world and you know, learning from the best. That's the idea of these insult talks. And we would be very grateful for, uh, for, to hear from you. Again, a very good question. Um... I'm a huge fan of the Ian Fletcher uh, International Insolvency Moods for two reasons. First, it is such an appropriate way to acknowledge Professor Ian Fletcher, an icon in this field. 
I've cited his work in my judgment. So uh, his passing has left us with an Im immeasurable loss. A second, uh, it provides such an excellent platform for young talent to flourish and sharpen their learning in this field. And kudos to Insol and the IIII for coming together to organize such an important competition. Uh, as you have pointed out, I had the pleasure of judging the 2020 finals and was left deeply impressed by the quality on show. It, in fact, it left me feeling rather good about the future of insolvency, principally because of the pipeline of talent coming through. I would like to return to the point I made earlier about the importance of the moots as a platform. Muting as mooting, and, and you will know this uh, because you teach, mooting has a huge benefit of getting students of the law to think deeply on the issues framed by the moot problem. A well-written moot problem would inevitably throw up challenging questions, the answers to which are uncertain and not at all clear. The participants are forced to think hard about these questions and formulate cogent arguments in support of their respective positions. And being tested on these arguments, on the arguments by the judges, while on their feet will quicken thought and sharpen focus. The experience is hugely invaluable. Uh, what can I say for young students, smart, driven university students, and about the, about the real world? I really have two pieces of advice. First, be an entrepreneur. And do not be frightened to innovate or question what might appear to be set in stone. Uh, be nimble and flexible. Second, pick up multidisciplinary skills. I think the elephant in the room is technology. Technology is an accelerator of change. The change it brings is rapid and continuous, and that makes it so difficult to predict, predict its ramifications. We must adjust to the new paradigm, as must the law and the practice of the law. I'm of the view that the practice of the law will change dramatically in the not too distant future. Changing consumer needs and expectations brought about by, brought about by technology will bring a change in the demand for legal services. To survive, let alone succeed, it will not be sufficient to have a strong competency in the law. One will need to specialize, and in doing so, acquire competencies in other disciplines. And this will be a lifelong exercise as change is inevitable as it is continuous. It means we'll have to run harder and think faster. Oh, thank you so much, Justice Ramesh. I can relate and I agree with your recommendations or advice for, for the future generations. I, I completely, we're completely on the same page in that respect. Thank you so much for being with us today, Justice. I have really enjoyed our conversation and, and there's so much there. So I will have to re-listen again and just write down some of the points that you've made. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much, Julia. It's been an absolute pleasure and it's always a pleasure to talk to you. If you have enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast provider so you don't miss an episode. Contact us on LinkedIn and Twitter at Insol International using the hashtag InsolTalks. The information provided is intended for a general audience and reflects the personal views of the participants. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Thank you for listening. <laughs>